Welcome back to Parashat Chukat. My name is Ariel ben Lyman Hanavi. I'm the author of the commentary. We are in the book of Numbers, chapter 19, and we've been looking at the commandment regarding the Para Aduma, the red heifer, and the ashes that are uh, prescribed there. And it's a peculiar commandment in that God asks the people uh, to, or instructed Moshe to tell the people to to slaughter a female cow without blemish, and um, in the slaughter of the cow, uh, the person, the person's uh, um, putting together, uh, preparing the mixture would be rendered tameh, unclean. However, the resultant mixture itself would be utilized in a ceremony that would render anyone who was unclean cleansed. And so, the paradox for us today is that God is actually bringing forth life or healing from something that seems to be so closely associated with death. The challenge for us today is to understand that faith requires us to look past and move past our logical um, uh, objections to the Word of God and step into faith and realize that God's Word doesn't always make sense to our natural mind. The ultimate paradox is that from the death of one man, life was granted to the entire world. And of course that one man is Yeshua. No other man could do this because no other man was sinless. Every other man was sin, was sinful. And it is our own sin that defiled us. It is our own sin that sent Yeshua to the execution stake. And because of our sin, we are defiled. And in this defilement, we need God's remedy. And what is that remedy? In the ashes of the red heifer mixture, we see that the picture painted is that the ashes themselves, something which rendered the, the, the people who prepared it unclean, the ashes themselves were the remedy to render the person clean again. And in the case of Yeshua, of which of course this type and shadow is pointing, we must avail ourselves of the sacrifice of Yeshua if we are ever to hope to be declared clean again by God. So it was a very good lesson. I encourage you to go back and listen to part A. For now, let's move on to part B. If you're following along with the written notes, um, we're in the middle of page 3. This next section is entitled, From Kadesh to Moab, Disobedience, death and desert dilemmas. Now, this, if you'll recall, the book of Numbers is the story of the wanderings of Israel. There's a lot of narrative that just deals with them moving about from place to place and the incidents that are recorded. The parasha goes on to narrate this, the tragic story of Moshe's disobedience. It's a shame that we have to read about this uh, incident at all. Chapter 20 records for us the sobering reason as to why this otherwise stalwart leader succumbs to human weakness. It is true that he was incredibly faithful to perform all that Hashem asked him to do. He really was. Yet, even Moshe was not perfect. And you know what? Let me just pause and say this. I can take great comfort in that. I read this Torah, and I read the stories of the people involved. You know, Avraham, Moshe, David. And you know what? These are great men. Great men. Much greater than myself. And yet, these men were human, just like me. They had strengths. They had weaknesses. They had insecurities. They had, they had happiness. They had joy. They had peace. They had sorrow. They had dilemmas. They had real life situations. They had stress, just like I do. And you know what? They had the same opportunities that I do, which is what? To either step into faith and walk by faith and believe and trust God for the impossible or to cave in and yield to human pressure and sometimes make the wrong decisions. And we all, we, we all realize that correction is unpleasant. 
but the good news is that God, through Messiah, uses these difficult steps in our life, these difficult times, to bring about a real change that otherwise we might not have gotten. The object lessons that God uh, prepares for us and walks us through are designed to mold us into the lifestyle of Yeshua, into the pattern of His dear Son. And with that, I cry, Baruch Hashem, thank you, God, for drawing me close to you. If it has to be painfully, then let it be painfully. And God, it's my fault that it's painful. You afford me uh, a, a, a life of, 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 um, of, of strength and of, of, of stability and a life of, of, of following after you. And what happens is I, in my foolishness, I step out into my own strength. I try to do things my way. And that's when things get really difficult. And so I'm sorry, God, that I disappoint you from time to time. Isn't that so true of, of, of us as well? Those of you listening to my podcast that can relate. Which one of you has stepped out of the will of God from time to time? I, I think I see everyone raising their hand. None of us is perfect. We all make mistakes. But thanks be unto God. That's not the end of the story. If you keep reading the story with Moshe, God continued to use him as a leader. God continued to speak of him in, 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 in positive ways. God is not about tearing down an individual and destroying them. God is all about reconciliation. If you're going through a tough, tough time these days, ask yourself, God, what, what lessons am I meant to learn through this? How can I come through the other side and learn to trust you more, strengthen my walk with you, and be pleasing to you? Lord, I want to please you. Moshe was human. He's human, just like me, just like Ariel. I can take great comfort in that. I can, I can be encouraged that, that, that God works with clay vessels. Moshe was not perfect. The pressure mounted, and in a moment of anger and indecision, lack of faith, I might add, he struck twice when he was commanded to speak. You know what I'm talking about. God says, speak to the rock, and water will come forth. Moshe, in a lack of faith and frustration, struck the rock twice. He dishonored Hashem in the sight of Israel, and this is something that God would not allow. Moshe was what you call high-viz leadership. Okay? He's in a position where everyone can see him. This is true of leaders as well. This is true of me. I'm a leader in my community. I've got to watch my actions. I've got to watch my words because people are watching me. Whether I know it or not, I'm in a position of leadership. And that's a high responsibility. It carries with it a high price tag. I'm not trying to say I'm some great person. I'm called to serve. Like every leader is called to serve. Moshe was a servant. But in this position of serving... The eyes of the people were on Moshe. And Moshe cannot let his guard down. There are times when leaders need to understand that they have to answer to a higher standard than your average person. God does not love the leaders more than he loves uh, the other people. Rather, the leaders are in a position of leadership, in a position of, of high visibility. And God has to say, because you're visible... You have to be that much more careful. It doesn't matter how long you've been doing your ministry. This responsibility will never, ever leave. God told Moshe to speak to the rock. It sounds very simple. Moshe disobeyed. And for this, Hashem would not allow him to enter into the land that he was leading the people to. Now, if you read through the book of Hebrews, and I may get to this a little later on, you'll find out that it was not just striking the rock. The writer of Hebrews seems to indicate, using a, a verse out of the book of Psalms, the writer of Hebrews seems to indicate <clears throat> excuse me, that it was lack of faith, that generation, that lacked 
faith in God and demonstrated their lack of faith by not trusting in God and obeying Him, that that generation would die off in the desert. Only Joshua and Caleb and the children would enter into the land. The rest would die in the desert as a result of God's punishment. Moshe must be included in that group. As faithful as he was at times, he allowed himself, I don't know what, maybe his prayer life uh, slacked off. Maybe he failed to press into the Spirit of God. I don't believe that it was just this one moment that God um, um, withheld uh, him from going into the land because he disobeyed once. I think rather, I'd like to think that, that as leaders, and, and I'm speaking from personal experience, that actually we set ourselves up for failure. We fail to press into God. We fail to spend time with Him on a daily basis. We fail to pray. We fail to, to, to meditate. We fail to read the words of God. We fail to commune with God. And in our weakened state, that's when failure comes. So, the lesson is painfully clear. Maintain your relationship with God. God is a real person. He desires companionship. He gets lonely when you're, when you're gone. I mean, we don't usually think of it in those terms, but that's true. I have people in my in my life that are very near and dear to me, people that I miss dearly when I'm not around them. I want to see their face. I want to, to hear their voice. And when I can't be with these people, I get lonely. I get I get sad. I can't help but think that's how God feels when I don't spend time with Him. God says, Ariel, where are you at? You're far from me. Won't you spend time with me? Won't you come and talk with me? I love you and I want to talk with you. I want to find out how your day was. I want to find out what, 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 what went well and what didn't go so well. Tell me your frustrations. Tell me your joys. How are you doing? When I neglect my relationship with God, this is what causes me to become weak. I saw this clever bumper sticker the other day. It said, seven days without prayer makes one weak. And the word weak was spelled W-E-A-K. <laughs> yeah, that's true. We've got to press into God, Be not only because, not only because it allows us to strengthen our walk with God, but we've got to press into God's presence because God desires it, and we should desire it too. So Moshe must have been in a place where he was, um, he was far from God, because he was not walking in obedience. He struck the rock, he should have spoken to it, and for this he would only be allowed to gaze at the land from afar. Even though he pleaded with God on later occasions to be able to go in, God said no. God said, I've got to teach you a lesson. I can't allow you to toe a different standard than everyone else. The same standard is true for everyone, whether you're a leader or you're a follower. Faith in God and a viable relationship with God are what is required to be pleasing to God and to have God smile on our lives. What lessons can be learned from this? Well, for one, Hashem is a merciful God. His mercies are renewed every day. And in spite of Moshe's disobedience, water did indeed flow from the rock to meet the community's physical need. We've got to recognize that even in the midst of disobedience, God is greater than our sin. God can extend mercy towards us even though we don't deserve it yet along with God's mercy we remind ourselves that there is the requirement of responsibility especially where chosen leaders are involved Moshe again he's high viz he cannot simply be allowed to uh, blatantly disobey God especially in the sight of the people 
High visibility carries with it a high price tag. The greater the calling, the greater the responsibility. Moshe was not in a position to be blatantly disobeying Hashem. And as a result, uh, because his call was a higher one, God expected more from him. God expects more from those whom he has uniquely anointed to lead the people. Moshe was no exception. All of us as leaders have this unique responsibility. All of us really are responsible for following God, um, especially given the fact that God has anointed us to do specific tasks within his kingdom. Yet, when it comes to leaders, God has chosen certain people, Moshe is one of them, to demonstrate his, his holiness in such a way that um, there is a greater responsibility and a greater, um, how should I say, a greater dependency on God's um, provision and God's, uh, uh, God's supernatural leading. And In other words, what I'm trying to say is this, we're all required to have faith in God. And yet the leaders, because they are leaders by virtue of their calling and by virtue of the anointing that rests upon them, the leaders must in fact, rely upon God's power, God's, God's hand upon them to a, de a greater degree because they must lead the people. And uh, this is true for Moshe. This is true for people today. So remember, this man Moshe was the man that, of whom the Torah says that God spoke face to face and mouth to mouth. God revealed himself to Moshe. The verse that says, to whom much is given and much is required, has a uh, very... Um, strong uh, application to this situation with Moshe. Wouldn't you agree? To whom much is given. God spoke to Moshe face to face. God revealed himself to him. Therefore, there's no excuse, as it were, for Moshe to be lacking in faith at this particular moment in his life. <clears throat> in our Torah portion, we read of the deaths of two of the community's great leaders two from the same family, no less, I might add. Miriam, the sister, uh, and Aharon, the Kohen Gadol, both die in chapter 20 of this particular parasha. And so, it's, it's a sad note that we read about the deaths of these two leaders in the community. Surely God's hand was upon them. Surely God anointed them to do the things that they were called to do within their respective roles. And yet, we can't help but wonder. Perhaps God was allowing them to expire sooner than should be based on their uh, their attitudes towards Moshe a few, a few a parashot ago. I've heard a few rabbis uh, purport that this might be um, uh, one of the reasons why maybe they expired a lot earlier um, or my, why maybe they weren't allowed to live a lot longer than this. Perhaps God was demonstrating to them as well, you are leaders. You are expected to walk a, a, a higher standard than just your average person who's not in leadership position. And as a result of your challenging Moshe's authority uh, a few chapters ago, you know, as we read about it, God is also explaining that, that this cannot uh, be allowed to happen within the community. And so perhaps maybe we see another example, uh, another um, object lesson. I can't, I can't be dogmatic about it, but again, in the case of Miriam, we saw the people's concern for her... Um, and this was demonstrated a few parashot ago when as she con contracted Sarat, remember God was punishing her with leprosy? You remember how the people um, did not move? They waited while she remained outside the camp before moving on with her travels? This shows that she was not just a leader in the community, 
but she was a recognized figure. She was an important person in the camp. This was the sister of Moshe, but she was a leader in her own right. Remember, she's the one that led the women in, 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 in uh, dancing uh, and singing after, uh, after the uh, Red Sea incident, after everyone drowned in the Red Sea. Here and, here and in the um, latter part of chapter 20, Israel mourns Aharon for 30 days as his son Elitzar takes on the awesome responsibility of his father's place in the community as high priest. Aharon, again, also, if you recall, had his share of mistakes as a leader. He, uh, he participated in the Golden Calf Incident. You remember he, um, he, he, he in, uh, uh, in surprise, exclaimed, I, I don't know where this calf came from. You know, I just threw the gold in, or they threw the gold in and out jumped this calf. No, Aharon needed to own up to his responsibility in that incident as well. Even though God forgives us, there are still consequences for the things that we do that are um, that that can take years to uh, uh, to to come into effect as it were um, I don't know why God allows this to happen we can rest assured that he does forgive us and that he does forget about those things in which he grants genuine forgiveness again as I mentioned earlier we are the ones who bring these things to God's attention we say I'm sorry God Three years ago, I failed you, and, and I just don't want to fail you again. And if God were to speak audibly back to us, he might say something like this. You did what for me? You did what to me three years ago? What are you talking about? I've forgotten about that. So, we need to understand that genuine forgiveness is afforded by God. And yet, there are consequences for our actions. And so, it would, it would serve us well to remind ourselves that even though God's mercy is abundant... We cannot exhaust His mercy. We need to be very careful. God Himself determines the consequences. God allows the consequences to come into our lives to remind us and to teach us object lessons about the, um, the importance of walking a, a life of holiness. God could change things if He'd like to. I'm, I'm, I'm rather... Um, uh, how should I say it? I'm rather pleased when I find that God is not as uh, harsh in punishing me as I think I deserve to be punished when I step out of line. Again, that's the mercy and grace of God. Sometimes the consequences don't match the crime. Remember the case with David where he committed adultery with Bathsheba? I believe the death penalty was in order for the king. However, God spared his life and took the child's life instead. So David lived. His household suffered. He had turmoil. His sons hunted him down like a fugitive. His house was split. And um, we saw great uh, uh, stress and, uh, again, inner turmoil, and yet he lived. And so, again, even in the judgment of God, there's mercy. The glimpses that we read about here in the Torah into the personal lives of those who lived during the period of the Tanakh drive home the fact that these were ordinary folks just like you and me. I hope you're hearing that. I hope you're seeing that as we read through the stories. Moshe was a human. He was a real person. He was not some mythical figure. He was not some meta-human. He wasn't a superhuman. He wasn't a mutant. He was a man. And you know what? He had real feelings. And he had real fears. He had real concerns, real passions, real drives, real ambitions. Just like you, just like me. And guess what? He had to toe the invisible line of faith just like everyone else. The Tanakh drives home the fact 
that these were ordinary folks by displaying their strengths and their weaknesses for everyone to see. This is also a testimony to the genuine, um, uh, how do I say, the, the, the genuineness of the authenticity of the Torah. Because if it were manufactured by men who were creating these stories, surely they would have left out all of the nasty events that happened in the lives of people like Moshe. They laughed, they played, they hoped, they feared, they loved. They cried just like we do. And as such, we should be less critical when examining the lives of these ordinary desert-dwelling folks. I sometimes wonder if we would have done any better were we in their situation. Nevertheless, as we read through the book of Numbers, we're going to find that their journeys take them into close proximity to some territorial enemies of theirs. In an act of cordiality and humility, in this particular part of the Torah, Moshe offers to pass through the land of the Edomites without disturbing what belongs to Edom. He even uses the identification marker of brother when he's talking to the Edomites, highlighting the well-known fact that Edom was a, descent, a descendant of Esau, the brother of Yaakov, whom the Israelites were descendants of. So these were their brothers. But despite his gentle pleadings in chapter 20, verse 14 through 21, Edom refused to allow passage and instead turned a closed door to the wandering descendants of Yaakov. Edom even issued a threat, if you'll recall, of sword upon anyone who would cross into his land. This incident, by the way, is not going unnoticed. The children of Israel are dis... Um, uh, what's the word I want to say? They're, you know, they're, 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 uh, uh, they're inconvenienced. However, God is watching. This incident will be remembered for ages to come in the journals of the Tanakh. Why? Because Hashem was not pleased with Edom and his prophets will record that Hashem's heart on the matter is, is, is that he was displeased. We're going to see about this later on. Everyone can read and understand that God is going to be disappointed with Edom's reaction here. And we'll read about that maybe a little later on. But for now, Israel had no choice but to comply with Edom. They, 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 they could not fight him. And so they went around the long way. And in chapter 21, they, as they're going around the long way, we read about their involvement with the king of the Emori. And guess what? They offer to, to go through the land, not taking any water or to paying for anything that, um, that they might consume. Again, the same invitation is offered to them as with the Edomites. But this time, Sihon, the king of the Amorites, the, I'm sorry, the Emori, rather than just turning them away, he actually takes to the offensive and attacks Israel. And so God intervenes because God is protecting his people. God understands, you know what? I'll deal with Edom a little later. He'll pay for his uh for his 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 um his his lack of hospitality and the inconvenience that it causes you to go around. But what Sihon has done is unexcusable, and so God intervenes and Israel defeats the Emory all the way up to the borders of the people of Ammon. And following this successful campaign, Hashem actually instructs Moshe to muster a small army and go against Og, the king of Bashan, as well. It's like they're on a roll. God says, you know what? I'm with you. I'm going to go with you. In fact, this reminds me of when Moshe said, if you're not going to go with us, God, then we don't want to go at all. Moshe does, in fact, um, muster a small army like God instructs him. And guess what? Adonai causes a great victory there as well, with the complete destruction of those in opposition to Am Yisrael. Now we can understand, when God said to um, Avraham way back, 
Genesis chapter 12, verse 1 through 3, I believe. He says, I'll bless those who bless you, and I'll curse those who curse you. There's a divine cause and effect set into motion when God said that he would bless the offspring of Abraham. And the children of Israel are indeed the offspring of Abraham. God is protecting them. God is keeping his covenant with the offspring of Abraham. If Abraham were around to see this, he would be very, very proud. We don't rejoice in the destruction of anyone. It's a shame. <clears throat> Sorry. It's a shame that anyone has to die at all. But God is very clear in what he states in his word. If we oppose God's people, we're going to find ourselves in opposition to God himself. Amazingly, this, uh, um, this uh, um, campaign here, the defeat with Og and Bashan, this is the precise setting for Ahav to our portion of Shoftim, which is Judges chapter 11, verses 1 through 33. So again, as we're reading about these uh, stories, these are a glimpse. Um, in fact, this is a glimpse into the beginnings of the intense land disputes that the people would find themselves involved in for quite a while to come. And now here we are in the 21st century. And you can pick up a newspaper and read about the land of Israel and what seems to be the primary source of, 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 of um, conflict over there today. Is it not land disputes all over again? That's amazing. Indeed, such disputes dominate the entire book of Judges, the books of Shoftim. The promises of Hashem did not come without a struggle. There's a lesson for us. We've heard this one before. I may as well repeat it. The promised land was not just handed over to the people. Rather, to secure what was theirs by covenant right, the people would have to scratch and struggle for it. In some ways, the people have a right to complain. God, I thought you were going to give us the land. What's with all the enemies? Aha, God says, that which is worth having is worth fighting for. And besides, by allowing you to trust in me to get that which I've promised for you, it will build character. What can be gained from the graphic example? Does Hashem want us to fail in reaching the goal that he himself sets for us? Hardly. Let's read about that, okay? This next section is entitled, Are We There Yet? <laughs> Those of you who are listening to my podcast who are parents and you have children and you uh, go on a, like a vacation or something, a, pl uh, a road trip, and what are the kids always asking? Are we there yet? Are we there yet? Are we there yet? Well, that's what this next section is titled. Are we there yet? The children are on their way to a journey. Uh, on their way to a destination. They're on a journey. They're on the way to a destination. And I'm sure they're getting very impatient. In the upcoming portion of the Varim in Deuteronomy, known as Vayelach, we find Moshe challenging the people to obedience in chapter 31 of that particular portion. But let's look at it right now real quick since it bears relevance to our current portion. He, Moshe, promises and charges young Yehoshua, Joshua, in verse uh, 23 of chapter 31 of Deuteronomy, to be strong and full of courage. In fact, if you recall, that's what God also says to Yehoshua in the first few chapters of that book that bears his name. But here now, Moshe tells Yehoshua, who, is, who Moshe by this point in time is aware that Yehoshua is going to be his successor. He tells him to be strong and full of courage, for indeed he, Yehoshua, Joshua, will lead the people into the promised land. Remember, Moshe knows that he can't go in. But on the heel of that promise, and in keeping with the theme of obedience, Moshe warns of the future apostasy 
of that often rebellious bunch. And that's where I want to stop and focus our study for about two pages so that we can see a lesson couched for us that, re that bears relevance to um, our, uh, our study on why God would allow challenges to lie ahead in the land when he already promised the land to him. So look at this. Having warned the people about their coming days of lawlessness in verses 16 through 18 of Devarim chapter 31, Hashem then commands Moshe to teach the people a song of remembrance. Isn't that peculiar? In Deuteronomy chapter 31 verses 19 through 21, here's that song. And this song is that which will serve as a witness for their God against the people of Israel. Now, the actual song itself is recorded for us in chapter 32 of Deuteronomy. So, the question is asked, in conjunction with um, the giants in the land, why does Hashem keep reminding them of their upcoming failure to obey Him? And the question I asked earlier was, you know, does Hashem want us to fail in reaching the goal? Is, is He gloating over our failure? We know that's not the answer, but we have to study it out anyway. From a cursory glance, people who aren't really familiar with God's words and God's ways or God's character, it does appear rather pessimistic and disheartening to, to read that God is talking about how they're going to fail him. You know, how would you feel if, if, if the God, the sovereign of the universe, the one who can look into the very future of your life, begins to tell you that years from now you're going to disobey him and that you're going to leave him? It is disheartening in some ways. In fact, it may strike the average reader as being too harsh and challenging, similar to the seemingly insurmountable challenge, as you recall, that awaits the people as they endeavor to enter the land of promise, which is why I'm bringing these two passages together for us. But we need to understand the heart of the Father here, okay? His loving chastening does appear at first, at first, to be too much for us to bear. But as we begin to see the big picture, then we will understand it more. I've got to point out right now, again, for those of you who are listening to my podcast and you're going through a tough time and you're thinking, God, this is more than I can bear, this, this, this crucible that you have me in. I, I can't bear it. Keep in mind, know for certainty that God has promised never to leave you nor forsake you. He will go with you. He'll be with you during the hard times. And the crucible that you're in is to create character within you, to bring within you, or to create within you the the the, um, the metal, the uh, uh, the uh, um, the character commensurate with doing the call uh, to walking into the call that he has on your life, to um, to performing the ministry that he's calling you into, to allowing your faith to matriculate so that you can have the kind of faith that is necessary to do the work that God is asking you to do. And sometimes God has to crush us in the process. I think it was Billy Graham who said something like this, God will never fully use a person until he fully crushes them. It's a powerful lesson. And we're beginning to see it here with Israel as well. In order to understand why Hashem uses Moshe to point out the downfalls of the people in Devarim, which I'm purporting as a picture of the struggles to enter the land, of course, then we must read what it says in Devarim 31, verses 24 through 29 again carefully. Now, I'm not going to quote it all here for you. I want to read it for yourself. All right? Read Deuteronomy 31, verses 24 through 29 on your own. What we're going to find out, in, and we already know this, but it, it's, it's worth studying it again. The Torah is Hashem's measuring rod for disobedience.
to be sure, this is what he said in Deuteronomy 31.26. Even the apostolic scriptures, the New Covenant, echoes the same teaching consistently throughout the above-mentioned book in Romans. Now, this happens to be, um, uh, or this happens, I should say, this occurs, uh, the Torah teaches us in both the Tanakh and the Brit Chadashah. This happens, and here's a quote, in order that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world to be shown to deserve God's adverse judgment. What does the book of uh, Psalms say, which is uh, uh, similar to Romans? For in his sight no one alive will be considered righteous. That's Psalm 143, verse 2, as well as Romans 3.29. I'm sorry, 3.19. You see, this specific, uh, this 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 uh, principle, that that no one in the sight will be considered righteous, specifically applied to those within the framework of the Torah, which the Jewish nation surely was. You see, the budding young nation that we read about in our current parasha, they had already, since the giving at Sinai, begun to live within the framework, which was, of course, God's laws that He gave to them, the Torah. Hashem now was training them to become dependent upon his grace alone to get them out of hot water. The Torah helps them to stay on the path. The Torah helps them to understand that God is their defendant. God is their rear guard. God is their strong tower. God is their protector, their provider. God alone. If they were to enter into the land and think that they could take it under their own power, then surely they would find disappointment and defeat waiting for them. God needed to teach them not just on the physical level that it was the land, um, that it was God's land and that it was necessary for them to walk in His power to gain it, but God was teaching them a spiritual lesson which carries down to us today, that the Torah is God's tool to measure our performance with God. God allows us to, to walk into the Torah and to, um, to, to obey and to disobey. And in this freedom, in this free will that we're given, we understand painfully at times that God is the one in control of our lives because we have covenantly bound ourselves to Him. And that's a good thing. It's not a bad thing to trust in God. It's just that the enemies of God seem sometimes in, in, insurmountable. The, 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 the adversaries of God seem just too big. The giants seem just too big. And, they, and we cry out, help! And God says, I'm here. You know what? The enemies that they would encounter on their way home would indeed be hot. This is hot water we're talking about. It would be God's grace alone that would be um, necessary to get them out of hot water. And God's desire is that we don't get into hot water in the first place. But what happens when we find ourselves in a pickle? God says, I'm not leaving you. I'm going to be with you always. Just trust in me. This by way of introspect is why he established the elaborate system of sacrifice uh, such as the red heifer that we learned about in part A. The people must be taught to operate according to trust because anything else is displeasing to God. What does the book of Hebrews say? Without faith, it is impossible to please God. It's that important. God is serious about this business of trust. We've got to learn to operate our lives by trust. Things were to be done according to the plan of the Holy One of Israel. It would take His loving provision to do what? To restore the fellowship that was lost as a result of the grievous sin of wanting to go back to Egypt time and time again. The people had it in their mind. 
that they were going to go back to Egypt, and God was saying, No, don't go back there. I set you free. You don't have to go back. I can't allow you to go back. You should not turn back. And yet, the people time and time again complained. Their faith failed, uh, failed them. Their faith faltered. And so God was left with no choice but to punish them and allow them to drop as dead men in the sand. A Jewish person living in the time period of Tanakh could only approach the Holy God according to the instructions of the Torah. God saw the heart, and God did not allow people to approach him with a cold heart, with, with disobedience in their heart, with, with rebellion in their heart. I want to go back to Egypt, but I'll bring the sacrifices anyway. That, that kind of relationship never lasts too long. For only God can repair the breach. If we are to approach God, we must allow it to be done in God's ways and in God's methods. And the sacrificial system of those days was to allow the people was 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 um, set in motion to allow the people to approach God to 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 repair the relationship. The animals, if you recall, covered the sin of the people. They smeared or they uh, wiped clean the sanctum. The, the sanctuary, and they allowed the uh, the sins to be uh, dealt with on the, on the in the flesh. God was interested in holiness. God was interested in sanctification. God was interested in a relationship. And guess what? He still is. For only God can repair the breach. And this is why, of course, all the sacrifices point towards Yeshua. The same God, the one who says, approach me, is the same God who would fight their battles as they approach the borders of the land. God says, draw near to be in worship. Have a relationship with me. Get to know me. I want to get to know you. I want to love on you. I want you to love on me. Let's be partners. And I'll fight your battles for you. Because I'm bigger than any enemy you'll ever encounter in the land. So when you cross over, fear not. Be strong. Be courageous. I will go with you. Why? Because I've got a relationship with you. I've got a covenant with you. The enemies were simply too strong for Israel by themselves. And Hashem wanted them to internalize this truth that he would fight their battles if they would just place their trust in him. It's no different today. Now, even though in our Torah portion here or in Devarim, it does not explicitly state these terms of the covenant, the ones I'm describing, we know them to be true from previous teachings of the Torah. God has promised never to leave us nor forsake us. In fact, those are the words of Yeshua, the Master, as he spoke to his Talmud while he was here on earth. And these promises can be claimed by you and I today. Why? Because we serve the same God, the Lord, uh, 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 um, the Father of our Lord Yeshua, the Messiah. This is the God we serve. And so, because God does not change and neither does Yeshua, we can be sure that the promises that the Father states to Israel and the promises that Yeshua states to his Talmudim, we can be sure today in the 21st century that these promises are true to us as well. He won't leave us or forsake us. If you're going through something, and you know what? We all go through things at times. What's the solution to the dilemma? Trust in God. Be faithful to his word. Remain covenant partners with him. Don't break faith with him. Don't turn a cold heart to him. Don't turn a deaf ear to him. Press in to God. He wants to relate with you. He wants to, 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 uh, um, he wants to converse with you. He wants to commune with you. He wants to assure you 
that he will never leave you nor forsake you. The word of Hashem is eternal and unchanging. Amen? Amen. Likewise, his nature is eternal and unchanging. This is the God we serve. Does it therefore surprise us to find Hashem challenging his children to learn how to do things his way? It should not. Performance-based righteousness was never the plan of the Holy One. God didn't say, draw near to me through your own works, through your own actions, through your own self-imposed identity. The Torah will always serve to remind us that we will all fall short of the goal when we try to accomplish things our own way. The Torah is the measuring rod for our obedience and our disobedience. The Torah is the standard by which we approach God. Whether it be the grumbling of a desert-weary people waiting to find a home, or the everyday life of a believer in Yeshua, the Torah remains God's standard of righteousness. And so we see now that by reminding us of our shortcomings, the purpose of Hashem is accomplished. What happens when we realize our failure? One thing that happens, at least it happens for me, I don't know if it happens for you. You know what ends up happening? I'll tell you what happens. I fall desperately into His means of provision for my sin. When I reach the end of myself, when I hit rock bottom, I cry out to God, Oh, save me. Oh, help me. I've destroyed myself, and I need your help. And where's God? He's right where He always was. He's not the one who moved. I was. I'm the one who leaves Him. I'm the one who walks away. He never leaves me. I just need to realize that he's that close to me. What happens then is I accept him on his terms and his terms alone. I have no choice but to accept his sacrificial offering, whether it be the red heifer, the para aduma, then, or the Messiah, now. I run into his mercy. I run into his forgiveness and to his grace. Abba, cleanse me and heal me. You are the one that I run to. And guess what? This is not legalism. This is not too harsh thinking or even narrow-mindedness. What is this? This is pure love. Love from a father who says, Ariel, I love you with an intense, passionate love. I'll never let you go, Ariel. I'll never let you go. Just run to me. Look to me. I'll never let you go. Had it not been for Yeshua, of whom the, the red heifer was a type and shadow, providing the only way back to the Father for all of humanity, where would we be today? We would all be without hope. Think about it. A man only accepts the hand of his rescuer once he realizes he's drowning and cannot save himself. Until then, we're all lost and blind and we don't even know it. We're swimming in shark-infested waters, ready to be devoured. And here comes a ship with a man. And he says, hey, come into the boat, I can save you. And here we are swimming along. We don't even know we're in danger. And we say, no, that's okay, I don't need saving. You see, we have to understand that it is Yeshua who is reaching out his hand to rescue the man who is drowning, to rescue the man who is about to be devoured by the sharks. And so unless the man realizes he's in need of Yeshua, he won't reach out to accept him. And that's where the Torah 
plays a vital part in helping the man to understand that this man needs a savior. The Torah is his mirror and it comes alongside the man to show him his deficiencies, to point out the problem. And what is the problem? The problem is sin, a heart clouded with sin. And unless the man accepts the, the, the outreached hand of Yeshua, the man will die in his sin. And so that's our object lesson for this particular section of our parasha. Uh, we're at the bottom of page 6, and this section is entitled Talmudic Midrash. Now, we understand that the Torah was given to us so that we can understand our need for God's provision. The Torah also points us towards Yeshua. When we are unsaved before we find out who Yeshua is, the Torah reminds us of our sinful state. In other words, to use Paul's logic in the book of Romans, we first need to understand the problem, the dilemma, and that's sin, before we can understand and, and, and embrace the solution, which is Yeshua's sacrifice. But what we also need to remind ourselves, um, historically, as far as the corpus of uh, the book is concerned, the literature, that the Torah was given in the wilderness so that we might also see the awesome provision of an almighty and all-loving Father. The Torah was not given in the land. Isn't that interesting? The Torah was given where the people needed it in the desert. So what we're going to do is, based on this principle of being given in the desert, in, in the wilderness, the sages are going to walk us through some interesting midrashim, all right? Citing a couple of pasukim, a couple of verses from uh, Parashat Hukat, um, I'm going to close this commentary. It's gonna, this last section is only going to be probably 15 or 20 minutes long. I want to close by explaining what the sages, the ancient rabbis, the uh, Chazal, I want to say what, I want to, um, uh, uh, let you guys know those listening by podcast who don't have access to the rabbinic writings I want to um, make you privy to what they had to say about the giving of the Torah in the wilderness Okay, they, they draw this midrash because they're, they're keen to this as well they realize that God could have called the people out of Egypt through the wilderness brought them into the land and then given them the Torah but in fact God does take them out of Egypt and then gives them the Torah and so what lesson can be learned? Now this is a midrash, so just follow along with me, okay? The Talmud says that Hashem purposely gave the Torah to Am Yisrael in the desert to bring about a desired result. And so using a midrash, which is kind of like a homiletic explanation, like an allegory, they're going to midrash on a verse that we find here in Bemidbar, in, in, in here in Numbers. So as part of my introduction to mid, to uh to the book of Numbers, I explained this as well. So some of this is going to be a little familiar, all right? Um, let's first pull out a passage. Let's see. Uh, which passage is this? This is Exodus, I'm sorry, this is Numbers chapter 21, verse 18 through 19, okay? And this is right in our Torah portion. And that's why I'm bringing it up. All right, quote, Then Israel sang this song, Spring up, O well, sing to the well sunk by the princes, dug by the people's leaders with the scepter with their staffs. From the desert they went to Matanah, from Matanah to Nachaliel, from Nachaliel to Bamot. End quote. Now, the verses and their Midrashic explanation are actually discussed in the following Talmudic passage from uh, Masechet Nedarim uh, Da 55a. Okay, you ready? Quote, The princes dug the well, the nobles of the people hollowed it, by the lawgiver with their staffs. From the desert they went to Matanah, from Matanah to Nachliel, from Nachliel 
to Bamotz. End quote. And of course, that's again Bimidbar uh, or Numbers chapter 21, verse 18 and 19. That's right here in a portion. The Talmud goes on to ask the question Why does it say, From the desert they went to Matanah? Well, it answers, If a man makes himself like a desert, abandoning himself to all, Rashi, um, I'm sorry, let's try that itself, uh, again. Um, part, parts of the, the uh, Talmudic quote here are uh, uh, influenced by Rashi, and so I've got Rashi's uh, name showing up in this quote. Let's try that again. If a man makes himself like a desert, abandoning himself to all, and according to Rashi, he teaches Torah to everyone free of charge, which is what it means, abandoning himself to all, then, the Talmudic sage is going to say, then Torah will be given to him as a gift. And the word for gift is matana, as it says, quote, from the desert to matana. So, in other words, the desert is, um, the, the desert itself is like abandoning oneself. It's an, it's an emptying of oneself. It's a wasteland. And if a man empties himself to everyone around him, and according to Rashi, this means if he, if he empties himself of Torah, that is to say he gives Torah free of charge to everyone who, who, who encounters this man, then he, 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 becomes like a, uh, he becomes like a desert. As it says in this uh, Talmudic quote, uh, from the desert to Matana. Okay? Since it is given to him, the Talmud goes on the Talmud goes on to say, since it is given to him as a gift, he will inherit it from God. Nahalo El, as it says, from Matana to Nahli El. And so um, they're playing with the word uh, uh, inheritance from God, Nahalo El or Nah Nahli El. As it says, quote, from Matana to Nahli El. Since he inherited it from God, he will become elevated to greatness, as it says, quote, from Nachliel to Bamot. And the word Bamot means elevated places. So, in quote, that's again uh, from the Talmud Netarim 55a. So, in order to understand the Midrash, we need to understand the breakdown of the literal Hebrew words, alright? Look at my notes here, if you have them there on the middle of page 7. The word desert in Hebrew is Bamidbar. That's where the Torah was given. The word matana in Hebrew means gift. Okay, the word nachli el means inheritance from Hashem. Nachli plus el, gift from God or inheritance from God. I'm sorry. And then the word bamot is a plural. The word bima or bama, which means elevated or elevation. And so we have now bamot being um, elevated places or bam and then bamot, elevated places. You've heard of the bima before. Bima is an elevated place. Same root word here, okay? So from this, from these Hebrew words and from this passage, the ancient sages pulled a midrash. Now, whether or not I completely agree with the midrash is immaterial. The point is this. God, in fact, does want us to pour of ourselves into other people. He wants us to... to um, Oh, what's the word I want to use? The phrase I want to use. He wants us to to uh, give of ourselves. He wants us to empty ourselves out on the behalf of other people. Because this is, in fact, what the Yeshua the Messiah did for, for all those around him. He emptied himself for the sake of other people. He wants us to invest in other people. That's the term I was looking for earlier. And so, so as we empty of ourselves, God rewards us. We should not be motivated by the reward. 
We should be selfless. We should be giving of ourselves because it is who we are in Messiah. It's because it is the Spirit within us that is causing us to empty ourselves for the sake of those around us. But just know this, that in doing so, in serving one another, God will reward us. Our inheritance comes from God. And in this inheritance, God promises that He will elevate us. Those who, are, who humble themselves, God will exalt. And it's just that simple. Those who exalt themselves, God will bring down. So, the, um, the Midrash from the Sages is not too far off base. Wouldn't you agree? Okay, thus the above Midrash conclusion is given in the Talmud. Now, our Torah portion today closes with the people poised on the borders of the Yardane River opposite Jericho. They are ready to go in. They're poised and ready to go in. Are they ready to go in, though? That's the big question. They're poised and they're ready to go in. Or are they poised to face another challenge from Hashem? You know, which one is it? Well, were the people indeed, after defeating Og and Sihon, ready to enter the Promised Land? Did they, did you, do you think they had it within them after they, they were, were, were successful in this campaign? I'll tell you what. We'll have to wait until next week's parasha to find out, okay? I'm going to leave you with a cliffhanger. The closing blessing is as follows. Blessed are you, O Lord our God, King of the universe. You've given us your Torah of truth and have planted everlasting life within our midst. Blessed are you, Lord, giver of the Torah. Amen. Shabbat Shalom. That concludes our show for today. Remember, because the Messiah has already come, the Torah is now a document meant to be lived out in the life of a faithful follower of Yeshua through the power of the Ruach HaKodesh to the glory of God the Father. It should not be presumed that it can be obeyed mechanically, automatically, legalistically, without having faith, without having trust in Hashem, without having love for God or man, and without being empowered by the Ruach HaKodesh. To state it succinctly, Torah observance is a matter of the heart, always has been and always will be. My name is Torah teacher Ariel Ben Lyman Hanavi. The intro and outro song was produced and performed by Ryan Kingsley. For information on contacting Ryan, you can reach me by email at Yeshua613 at hotmail.com. That's Y-E-S-H-U-A number 613 at hotmail.com. Or visit our website at graftedin.com. That's graftedin.com.